Good evening. Good to see each of you, and if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us this evening. We'll have visitors with us, and you being here is encouragement to us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We will open your Bibles to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and we'll continue a series that we began this morning, Ephesians, the fourth chapter. As you're turning there, um, just a little bit of, of interesting and positive good news. I'm told that this morning we had 19 babies in our nursery classes this morning, and that's with no visitors, and five of our own were away uh, on trips. So uh, the nursery class is prospering, it's doing well, and uh, we appreciate you young families and all that you mean to this congregation, and we really appreciate all you that help in the nursery and make uh, that such a positive time for our children and for our babies. Many here uh, are aware either uh, by directly knowing Graydon Gaines or for him for quite some time now. i give you just a quick update and something that's available for us to do. Graydon is in Houston and will continue to remain there for probably about three more months with his treatments. And uh, at the end of this month, they'll do tests to see how the treatments are going. So uh, the end of July, very first of August, will be a very important time. Right now, he stays in the wrong house except for the week that he's having treatments and in that home for about two weeks and then back and forth. And most of the time, he doesn't feel like going and running around. A lot of the hours are spent in his room. Uh, sometime down the lobby, and, and there's some games and things, but a lot of the time he doesn't act. I asked his father uh, what we could do to encourage him and, and help him during this time, and he said, you know, there's really only one thing that Graydon has to look forward to each day. And he said, at about noon, he turns to me and says, Daddy, why don't you go check the mail? And, and let's see if... And he said, when I bring... He opens it. And uh, so I, wanna, I want you to know that. And I hope that all of us will, will go the extra mile to help a young man that would much rather be back here in Mount Juliet starting school uh, in a week rather than staying there for several months in Houston. Uh, let's remember that family. Uh, let's remember them in our prayers. Let's remember in every way that we can support them, help them, and encourage them. And one thing that would be a great encouragement right now would be those cards. Also, it is wonderful to have the Hines back in the States visiting uh, for a few weeks, and it was a pleasure to see Stephanie uh, Wednesday night, and Kevin's back now, and they'll be with us in, in and out of this area for the next few weeks, and, and it's wonderful to have them here. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we begin looking at verse 16 of where we began also this morning. Middle of a sentence, but yet it sets the tone for why we're looking at least over a few sermons at these 16 verses. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Now what have we read up to this point in this verse? He's talked about all of us as individual members coming together in one body of Christ and even refers to it as a knitting together or a pulling together. And when each individual does its part, but yet pulling together in the same direction, it's not you go that direction and pull there and you go in this direction and go in that way. It's all of us coming in the same direction and working together for the glory of God. And what's the result? The rest of verse 16 says, causes growth. 
That's the church. Causes the church to grow for the edifying of itself in love. And so when we go back and we look at these 16 verses and we say, what is God's model of church growth? If God were to teach a seminar and say, these are the things that causes a church to grow, instead of God spending all of His time looking at the demographics of the area and saying, well, now if we're going to reach that person, we better do this. And if we're going to reach that one, we better practice this. God says, let's think about us. When we get... That's the Lord's house... When we get our house in order, he says it'll become attractive and it'll become successful in growing the church. And so this morning, we looked at the first two verses of this chapter, and that was the right attitude. If we are to be the church that God wants us to be, a church that is attractive to those out in the community that will draw them to Jesus Christ, we must have the right attitude. It begins with me. Just as Paul, as a prisoner, he didn't take time off. Paul never reached a time in his life where he said, I'm not responsible for church growth. All of his life, in every situation, he realized that he must be an active part in the growth of the church. All of us must realize we have some role to fulfill in helping the church to grow. And then we noted those attributes that are so attractive. There in verse 2, it was lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another. When we practice, portray those things to each other and even to the community, those are attractive attitudes. It's not about, hey, look at us. It's let others see Christ living in us. We don't live these things by nature. We live these things only when we are allowing Christ to live in us. And so the right attitude is of great importance. But let's notice the second thing this evening. And that is the right doctrine, the right teaching. Look with me, if you will, at the next three verses. And that is 4, 5, and 6. I'd like to introduce these three verses by reading verse 3. So let's pick up at verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he talks about the doctrine. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. I oftentimes describe these three verses as some of the hardest verses in all of the Bible. They're exclusive. The Lord said of each one of these seven foundational stones, if you will, that we build our life upon, tonight, if you're here and you're faithful, you've built your life upon these seven things. And of these stones that are to be the foundation of which we build, the Lord said, there's one. That's hard. That's an exclusive number. Because that doesn't leave any room for you and I to say... Uh, excuse me, God, I like an option on that. Could I choose between this one and this one? Or Lord, could you lay out three choices and let me find which one just suits me best? And the Lord would come back every time and He would say, There is one. Notice again, I think it would do us well to see. Look at verse 4 again. That's the way verse 4 ends. There is one. 
Now, if you grew up with a sibling that was anywhere close to your age, you've gone through those arguments about there is two, there is not, there is two, there is not. You know, they're trying to get you to look down so they can pop your nose and say, uh, there's something on your shirt, is not, is two, is not, is two, is not. And you go that circle and you go around. And it's all right if it's a game about whether or not there's a hole in your shirt. But friends, how many people are doing this with God? And they're going to play that game with God all the way to the day of judgment. God would say, there's one body. That's the church. There's one church. And then we say, it's not. No, God, it's not. It's your choice of churches. Just find the one that's best for you. We go back and God would say, there is one body. It's not. There is one body. It's not. And they play that game with God. Except they'll realize on the day of judgment when they stand before God and they realize that these are the words by which they answer on the day of judgment that there was no game. That it was the foolishness and the craftiness of Satan that had deceived them into believing that these verses were not important. Friends, when we think about the ones here, for tonight's sake, I'd like for us to just briefly think about at least three of these ones. First, is there only one church or is there not? How many times have we heard individuals make those statements? You can read it on the back of semis going down the road. You could, used to could read it on the back of milk cartons. You can still oftentimes find it on bumpers going down the road and oftentimes on marquees or even on radio stations. And that is, find the church of your choice and worship Sunday. Where is that in the Bible? Find the church of your choice. As if God had started several churches and then He says, you just find one that fits like a hand in a glove. Friends, either that is right or this is right. But both cannot be right. God said very clearly, there is one body. Jesus would speak of that body before it was ever established. And he would say, upon this rock, I will build my, singular, my church. And the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. He spoke of that one church in Acts the 20th chapter, in verse 28, and he described it as the church that was purchased by his blood. In Colossians 1 and 18, he even described the anatomy of that church, and he said, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ's head doesn't have two bodies. Christ's blood didn't purchase two churches. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against only one church. And it's Christ's church. Someone says, preacher, that's pretty bold. Friends, that's Bible. I'm not up here trying to make something up. I'm not trying to make more of something than what God has said or less of something than what God has said. God is the one that put these three verses in the Bible that are the hardest three verses in all of the Bible. It takes all of the choices out. And God is saying, you serve me or you leave me. But there's no in-between. We fully submit to God in everything or we don't submit to God. There's one body. But notice also as we go into verse 5, he says there's one faith. 
Well, the same things that we oftentimes hear about the church are the same things that we oftentimes hear about faith. Which faith are you? One faith is as good as another. Oh, I like this faith. I prefer this over this faith. Where does faith come from? And really, what is faith? Now, we know that each of us must have faith in God. And so in that sense, there would be more than one faith. But that's not the faith that's being used here. You see, there's another way in which faith is used, the time that it's used here, and it's talking about the system of belief that are the result of following God's covenant, Christ's covenant, the New Testament. In other words, if we took Christ's covenant and we said to an individual here, you follow Christ's covenant and Christ's covenant only, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10 and 17. So that individual takes and they form their faith based solely and only, solely upon the new covenant. And you take another individual over here and say, follow the new covenant and the new covenant only. They're the same faith. The only way individuals become of different faiths is when they take away from God's Word, or they add to God's Word. And so when we speak of different faiths, actually what we're saying is we're saying, well, now which one are you choosing? One that adds to or one that takes away or one that's done a little bit of both? And so someone says, and they, and they use denominational names, I'm of the such and such faith, and I'm of the such and such faith, and I'm of the such and such faith, and they look and say, well, what faith are you of? I want to be of the New Testament faith. The faith that comes about when an individual follows Christ's covenant and Christ's covenant only. When we think about that kind of dedication, you see, the emphasis is not upon man. The emphasis is not upon additional creed books. The emphasis is upon God. You see, when we speak of an individual being faithful In that sense, it's an individual that has fully submitted in every way to the will of God. Now again, we could ask God, God, how many faiths are there to be? And God would say, without any reservation, there is one faith. You see, then the choice becomes ours Not to decide which faith, but to decide, will we submit to God? Because God has only one system of belief for us to follow today. Now notice the third one here as we look in the fifth verse to the very next phrase. There is one baptism. Now we could ask men again today, how many baptisms are there? And they would speak of many baptisms. As a matter of fact, I'll just use this as a point of illustration. Next door to us, until just the last few months, last six or eight months ago, there were three religious groups meeting in the three adjoining buildings next door every Sunday morning. Now, I'm going to give you what I would believe to have been taught over there based upon the name that is on their sign. I have not gone over there and sat down and and studied or asked them. I'm just giving you based upon the names on their signs this is probably what you would have found. 
You could go into one of those churches and say, do you believe in baptism? And they probably would have said, absolutely. Once you invite Jesus into your heart and you say the sinner's prayer and you're saved sometime in the next few weeks or sometime in the next few months, you'll need to be baptized as an act of obedience because of an inner faith that you have in God. And so, in other words, their belief of baptism is taking the saved and baptizing them. We could go behind and we could sit down and talk with that religious group. And we could say, do you believe in a baptism? And they would say, absolutely, we believe in a baptism. Whenever an infant is born into our church family, when that infant is only a few days old, we bring that infant in and we sprinkle that baby because they have inherited the sins of their parents or of mankind. We could have gone next door, and the irony, as we studied this passage, the group that used to gather next door to them actually believes in two baptisms within their own one religion. One of the baptisms that is very actively practiced across the world by this group is because of their great study in genealogy. And they find people in the past, sometimes many, many, many years ago, many generations ago, that through their study of genealogies, they found out that that person lived a wicked life and never submitted their life to God. And so they go through a procedure and they are actually immersed for the dead. The belief that when they rise up from that water, that individual that had died sometimes 100, 200 years ago is now saved because of their baptism of the dead, which is only mentioned one time in the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, and it's being challenged and condemned by Paul. So what's the point? There we could talk to various religious individuals that were just next door. And they would have taught three or four baptisms among three religious families. What did God say? God said, there is one baptism. By the time this is written, the promise of the baptism of the Spirit had already been fulfilled. Acts 2. Perhaps in Acts 8 and in Acts 10. By this time, John's baptism, him and his ministry being a forerunner of Jesus Christ, had already been fulfilled. And in Acts 19, when we see individuals that had gone back to practice that again, they were rebuked and commanded to be baptized again in the name of Jesus. And so by the time this is written, there's only one baptism. It was the baptism into Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It was always done by those, the candidate for that baptism of Christ are those who are believers, who are willing to repent of sins, and not ashamed of the Lord, but willing to confess Him before men. And as adults, or as believers, they are baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins, and they come out of the water, and that is the point in time that rejoicing takes place. So in other words, if one is so young that they cannot believe, they're not a candidate for the baptism that's taught in Scripture. Or, if one wants to be baptized for another, that is condemned in the Scriptures. 
what's the point? The point again is the same point that's made throughout these three verses. If we want to submit to God, there's not a choice. There's one baptism. And that's what we read in the Scriptures. When we think about these exclusive verses, it really does boil down to whether or not we believe God, or we believe our own will, or what others have said. Tonight, as we pull this lesson toward a close, turn to 1 Samuel, the third chapter. 1 Samuel, the third chapter. A very interesting story is told here. And what we want to gain is not just the history through the Old Testament that we can appreciate here. But as we read this story, I want to remind you of how important it is for us to be courageous if we are to grow spiritually. Saul and David could be laid down in your studies. So many things in their life were parallels. But the times that we see Saul not living up to his potential, you'll always find fear was associated with that. The times you see David excelling as a man and as a leader you always see that it was those similar times that Saul was afraid. David was courageous. What's the point? We oftentimes talk about spiritual maturity. What can we do to grow? No matter where we are today, what can we do to grow? Friends, one of the things that we must do is we must lean so much on God that it removes the fear in our life. There's some people that are afraid to take God at His Word. Well, well now, if I take God at His Word and I allow that to be my one faith, uh, how's that going to affect this relationship? And how's that going to affect this situation? And, and if I take God at His Word and I become a part of His one church, how's that going to affect the rest of my life? I can't see how that's going to affect the rest of my life. And it's fear that oftentimes causes us to never commit to God and to never make those changes because by human nature, we want to see the next step and the next step. It's interesting that one of the great prophets of the past, Samuel, as a very young boy, was taken to live in the temple with Eli. God tests this young boy in a tremendous way. Samuel, Samuel. He jumps up and he runs to Eli and said, You called? No, I didn't call. You go lay back down. He goes and he lays back down. Samuel, Samuel. He jumps up. Did you call? No, I didn't call. He goes and lays back down. Again, his name is called out and he runs in there and Eli says, I didn't call for you, but now Eli realizes what's happening. He says, Next time you hear that voice, Answer to God and tell Him, speak, for your servant hears. Think about that phrase. That's why we're reading this story. Speak, for your servant hears. Whether or not you and I can say that will make a difference where we spend eternity. He goes and he lays back in bed, and the fourth time he hears the voice, and this time he says... As he hears the voice, 
speak for thy servant hears. God gave him a message to tell Eli that because of the sin and the wickedness of his sons and the fact that he as a father would not restrain his sons, that all of their sins would come upon them, they would reap those no matter what kind of uh, sacrifices and atonements were made. Now you think here's a little boy that's come to live in the house with Eli, with God's house with Eli. And God is testing him. God could have went to Eli and gave Eli that message. But what was God doing? He was going to see whether or not this young boy had the courage to be a speaker for God as a prophet throughout his life. And the Scripture tells us that he stayed up the rest of the night. He was so afraid. Can you imagine that fear? When Eli wakes in the morning, can I tell him this? Can I break to him this bad news? Can I live with him after I give him this bad news? Will he whip me? Will he scold me? Will he throw me out of the house? I can't imagine all the things that must have run through this young boy's mind. But the next morning, verse 17, Eli is calling him in 16. In 17 he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God, do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that He said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and he had nothing from him. What an example. Encourage. He faced his fears by relying wholly upon God. Friends, the Lord teaches what causes the church to grow. And He says the first thing, get the attitude right. And we looked at that this morning. But then He says, make sure, make sure that the doctrine is right. And the only way that we can do that is to always say, Lord, speak. Your servant's listening. And when you tell me something that seems hard, encourage, I'll face it. I won't submit to my will or to other people's will. I'll submit to your will in all things. And it's then that you and I can help increase the population of heaven. Will you think with me on this question? What good have we done if we fill these walls five times over and in so doing, we cheapen the truth so that it becomes a lie. And we do not increase the population of heaven at all. You see, when we talk about church growth, we're talking about sharing the truth so that we can share eternity with God. Let's close with one verse. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, now notice that phrase there, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. You see, in that verse, verse 15, the things we studied this morning and the things we've studied tonight are blended. How important is it to speak the truth? All importance. How important is it to speak 
the truth with the right attitude, with love. All important. Have you ever seen individuals that they spoke the truth, but yet they did it in such a, a coarseness or a harshness that they drove away anybody that, that might be a prospective convert? And yet, on the other hand, have you ever seen individuals that they didn't speak the truth, but what they did speak, they spoke it in a kind of love, and it seems that they drew so many people to them. Friends, we have a huge responsibility, not only for our own souls, but for that which we portray to the community about us. We're to be a light set upon like a city on a hill. And the truth and the love of God is to shine forth. That is a huge responsibility and challenge. But we must not and we cannot do anything short of that. Or we failed. Some say today, I just don't think doctrine is that important. You know what the word doctrine means? Teaching. That's what it means, teaching. We live in a religious culture where people are saying, I don't believe the teaching of Jesus is very important. I beg you from the Word of God tonight, don't believe that lie. Christ's teaching is of huge importance. And he says some things that are difficult, but the challenge is worth it. There is one. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one hope of our calling. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. And there is one God and Father of all. And let's make sure tonight that we submit our all to that God. If you haven't been baptized into Christ, the one baptism, it's not our baptism. It's not this religious group's baptism. It's the Lord's one baptism. If you haven't submitted your life to that, won't you do that tonight as a believer, turning away from sin, not ashamed of the Lord, but willing to confess Him? Won't you be baptized into Christ tonight? Maybe you've been baptized in Christ and somewhere along the way you've lost focus and you simply want to come back and, and get on the right track again. We all can appreciate and admire folks making positive changes in their life. And if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.